0: Wild West Podcast, where fact and legend merge. The Wild West Podcast presents the true accounts of individuals who settled in a town built out of hunger for money, regulated by fast guns who walked on both sides of the law, patrolling, investing in, and regulating the brothels, saloons, and gambling houses. These are the stories of the men who made the history of the Old West come alive, bringing with them the birth of legends brought to order by a six-gun, and laid to rest with their boots on. Join us now as we take you back in history to the legends of the Wild West. Perhaps one of the best-known soiled doves of Dodge City was Squirrel-Tooth Alice. Born Mary Elizabeth Haley in 1855, Libby was born and raised in a life of privilege in Texas. Elizabeth Haley was 10 years old when she was kidnapped by Comanches and held captive for three years. Her father paid a ransom for her to be returned home, but life was never the same for Libby. Her father, certain she had been defiled by her captors, shunned her. Her father refused to allow anyone to court her and kept her out of society. She fell in love with a man twice her age and had hopes of marriage. She brought the gentleman home to meet her father but when met on the front porch, her father shot the man in the chest and killed him instantly. <laughs> Libby sensed at that moment she could never be happy if she remained with her family, so she left home and ran away to Kansas. What follows is the true story of Squirrel Tooth Alice after she arrived in Abilene, Kansas and met up with Texas Billy Thompson. <laughs> My name's Billy Thompson, sometimes publicized as Texas Billy Thompson. I was born in Nottingley, Yorkshire, England in 1845. At an early age, my family immigrated to the United States and settled in Texas. I became a true Texan, and during the Civil War, my brother Ben and I volunteered to fight for the Confederate Army. We joined the 2nd Regiment of the Texas Mounted Rifles. Most recognized me for having a quick and very violent temper. I would often find myself in trouble, and yes, there often occurred some sort of violence when a man riled me up. Those who knew me said I was unpredictable, troubled, and unstable. The after effects of the Civil War caused me to become an unpredictable loose cannon, and liable to cause damage if not kept in check by others. I became a dangerous man and was noted to be fairly formidable in a gunfight. In 1870, I started herding cattle up to Abilene along the Chisholm Trail. I hired on as a trail boss to accompany 2,000 head of cattle up the 600-mile trail. With me that spring were 10 cowboys, a chuck wagon cook, and a horse wrangler. The drive began south of San Antonio. After the herds were gathered in the brush country along the Nueces River, we pointed them north to Kansas. The trail to Kansas averaged 8 to 10 miles a day. We seized our time and allowed the cattle to stretch out over the trail to graze along the way. The life of a cowboy was not easy, but I was good at it and understood how to handle the many problems that occurred during the long drive. The cattle had to be driven across rivers, flooded streams, and through prairie storms. Still, the profit at the end of the drive was worth more than the difficulties along the way. My men and I arrived in Abilene in the early spring delivered our cattle to the McCoy Pens, and were paid after five weeks on the trail. I purchased some new clothes, a pair of boots, cleaned up, and decided to take in the attractions at the Novelty Theater. The Novelty Theater was known to give out entertainment lasting longer and made more noise than any vaudeville in New York. There on stage that night, I found an attractive young lady by the name of Elizabeth Haley. She and five other girls performed a new dance out of France and the band played furiously. The girls danced wildly. Elizabeth exposed herself to the onlooking crowd as much as possible, which caused us Texas cowboys in the audience to roar with excitement. The dance hall girls kicked their legs up above their heads, and many of the cowboys present viewed more legs that night than most cowboys saw on the trail eating chicken. I was so impressed with Miss Haley, I decided to introduce myself to her. I found her to be amazingly young to be a dance hall girl. Even at fifteen, Elizabeth wasn't beautiful in a usual way, and her sentiments were not easily hidden on her innocent face. She acted shy to smile as a gap between her front teeth showed her only imperfection to the down curve of her thin lips. I gazed into her eyes and instantly understood all the beauty of the creation, could not even hope to compete with her will to survive. I took her by the hand and we walked away from the novelty theater, out into the unruly, dim-lit streets of Abilene. The buildings were one-story high, of wood and with elevated fronts giving the effect to two-story houses. The sounds and scenes of the streets of Abilene at night teased on the cowboys. The cowboys swarmed the Alamo Saloon and in festive temperament lingered with eager ears. These were the tunes played on the violin and piano staged on a platform in the corner of the saloon. Tom Downey's bowling alley was occupied and the billiard tables of the old fruit busted away. When we arrived at the Bullhead Saloon, great stacks of coin were piled invitingly on the little round gaming tables and the eye of the tiger showed prominently in the window. The Bullhead Saloon, established in partnership with Phil Coe and my brother, had a large sign above the entrance. The sign featured an anatomically correct, though the hugely exaggerated painting of a bull. Naturally, the good citizens of Abilene were transgressed by the sign and considered it obscene. Elizabeth, on the other hand, found the bull's wares amusing. She pointed out the bull's exposed anatomy, looked over at me, and said, "'A man would need to have big ones to walk into this place.' She laughed as we entered the saloon." We had a few drinks, and I asked Elizabeth how she got started as a dance hall girl. I found out early on, after running away from home, that in places like Abilene, I did not need to be a lady to garner the same respect given to the floozies around town. Me being a dance hall girl was one thing. She paused with hesitation, gritted her teeth as her face turned red with emotion. But making money to offer my wares allows me to choose my own destiny regardless of where I came from. Yes, I am a prostitute, she said. It was the only profession I could find in this godforsaken place to elevate me to a position in society that drew notability among men. Now men see me on the streets, remove their hats, and take respectful bows in my presence. What women do in this town did not matter, she said, so much as the fact that she was a woman expressed fervor for survival, turned her eyes into spheres of the brightest fire, and in them I read clearly that she would fight to the very last dirge for her life. She would not let the world break her. Sure, she could weep, but she would never let anyone take her true self from her. I offered to walk her home. She accepted. I enjoyed her company that evening and asked her to join me the next morning for breakfast. The next morning, Elizabeth walked through the doors of the Bullhead Saloon. I watched her from the mirror behind the bar where I stood to stock bottles of liquor. She scanned the room of empty scattered bottles, found my reflection, smiled, and pulled up a chair at the table in a dark corner of the room. I returned her smile, shelved the last bottle, and came out from behind the bar. I took two steps in her direction when the saloon door busted open, and a bluster of a voice followed. My name is Marshal Hickok, and I have been instructed to do something about your indignant sign out front. Now, who owns this place? I was taken back by the grand and bold entry of the Marshal. I readily moved back behind the bar, reached for the double-barreled equalizer, and cocked back the hammers. The click of the hammers got Hickok's attention as Coe and my brother Ben came out from the back room of the saloon. Hickok placed his hands crossways on both of his turned-out revolvers. "'looked over at me and said, "'Boy, I'm not sure who you are, "'but if I do not see your hands on the bar "'within a split second, "'I'm gonna put a bullet in your head.' "'The tall, long, auburn-haired marshal "'had two navy revolver colts strapped to his side. "'His intense eyes stared at me like a panther, "'a wildcat ready to pounce. "'I felt the sweat drench my skin, "'the throb of my own eyes, "'and the thump of my heart against my chest.' My finger curled around the trigger of the shotgun as my eyes looked deep into Hickok's dead stare, waited for the flinch of an eyebrow as my guts churned my stomach with intense cramps. My brother Ben stepped out from behind the bar into the middle of the room and separated a possible conflict between Hickok and me. My name is Ben Thompson and this here is Billy, my brother. I'm part owner of this place along with my partner Mr. Coe over here. Ben pointed to Mr. Coe and asked, "'What seems to be the problem, Marshal?' Hickok told Coe and my brother to either take down the sign over the saloon or have the scandalous part painted over. My brother responded in a smile as his English accent ordinated the room. "'You know, Marshal, we should not get all hung up on what seems today to be the largest set of balls. I've always loved the idea that you think you know what you look at from a distance,' "'Yet when you come up close, it gets intricate, nutty, obscene, and provocative. "'Now, wouldn't you say this is the case with the gonads painted above your head?' Ben smiled, and Hickok laughed. Hickok backed out of the saloon, and within an hour returned with a double-barreled shotgun, a gallon of paint, and a workman to take care of the chore. By that time, Elizabeth and I sat at the table. My brother Ben had left the saloon.' I started to get up, and Elizabeth kindly asked me to stay in my seat. I did what she asked while Hickok cradled the scatter gun in his arms. The worker nervously painted over the sign. Under Elizabeth's persuasion, nothing happened except that a gallon of paint got slapped on the private bull parts of a swinging sign. It was at that moment I recognized Mary Elizabeth Haley had her heart in my interest, and she would take care of my needs. Elizabeth's warm encouragement made me feel as if I no longer alone in the world. She had the same commitment and courage to survive on the frontier as I did. To have Elizabeth as a partner would smooth the path of my angry temperament, give me a brighter side to my dark and edgy outlook on life. It was at that moment she said to me, "You can call me Libby." Libby and I set up house together. Libby danced in the saloons, Sold herself and shared her earnings with me. In less than six months, Libby and I made a small fortune. I lost most of the money we made at the gambling tables in just two nights. Libby and I decided to pull out of Abilene and take our chances elsewhere. This decision of departure occurred the day after Phil Coe, my brother's partner, was shot and killed by Hickok. It was the same night Hickok squeezed off two rounds killing by accident his good friend and jailer Mike Williams. They shipped Philip Coe's remains back to San Antonio. A dark-eyed woman we did not know, and did not bear his name, took the next train south. After the killing of Coe and Mike Williams, there was a hurried exit of cowboy, courtesan, and gamblers. Dickinson County, by order of the good citizens, was to become a farming community, and Abilene a law-abiding city forever. We were broke and desperate, so I decided to join a cattle drive headed south. I was appointed trail boss, and permission was obtained for Libby to travel with me. She traveled in the back of a wagon and followed the herd from Kansas into Oklahoma. By the time we left the cattle drives, Libby was pregnant. We left the drive in Oklahoma, and in late August of 1872, we were back out on the prairie. We arrived in Ellsworth, Kansas on the first day of April, 1873, and checked into the Grand Central Hotel. The Grand Central Hotel comforted Livy to have our first child. We named him Rance. We were then married and found ourselves in the need of money. Ellsworth at this time was a cow town and violence was common. We knew in the spring the cattle drives would start to come up from Texas to make a living. Libby would take up what she understood best and court the Cowboys. I, on the other hand, would do my share of gambling. My brother Ben joined Libby and me two months later. Shortly after Ben's arrival, we set ourselves up as the house gamblers in Joe Brennan's saloon on Snake Row. Joe was married to a dance hall girl by the name of Molly. The first time I saw Molly Brennan, I was attracted to her. She had an air of innocence. The beauty of her face gleamed with brown of cheek and the smile from her red lips could put any man into a trance. Her eyes moved softly about, gentle and as deep as those of an antelope could stir a man's heart. Libby worked at Lizzie Palmer's place. We all became good friends with Chauncey Whitney, the county sheriff. Sheriff Whitney and I spent a lot of time together. I found him to be a good man, effective as an officer of the law and well-liked among the citizens of the county. My brother Ben liked the sheriff and told me once that Whitney had a personality that made him an easy man to respect. He was strong but fair. Whitney's popularity had given to him as noted hero while serving as a scout during the Indian Wars. He was celebrated for his bravery in the Battle of Beecher's Island. To have a good relationship with a lawman was a good thing to have, but I fell short with Deputy Sheriff Morco. Morco was hired by the local police force, along with Ed Hoag and Ed Crawford, to reduce the amount of violence during the cattle drives. I found Morco to be a belligerent individual, and a bragger to boasted about how many men he had killed. He was known about town as John Happy Jack Morco, mainly because he was happy to boast in public about how he shot twelve men dead. The three of them together formed a pack of corruption. The lawmen got a fee for every arrest, so they frequently trumped up charges against visiting cowboys. Jovers from Texas didn't take too kindly to that. It only took a few weeks for three of them to find me. Morco did not like me, and I did not like him. Morco's hatred of me was nothing more but a transformation of his own shame and insecurities. Everyone in town knew him as an egotist and the lack of courage to face his real truth. He was a persecutor and all he wanted to do was beat down a person who already had more than their soul could take several times over. He would come into the saloon where I worked and started to use his authority to push me around. Morco found me in possession of a gun and arrested me on June 30th for carrying a weapon in town limits. This made me angry, but both Ben and Livy persuaded me to pay the fine and leave the matter alone. Ben was so irritated with the takedown, and during the hearing, warned Morco to cool it on the arrest. Morco, Ed Hogue, and Ed Crawford pay no mind to Ben's request. They returned his suggestion with a laugh, saying there was more to come our way. After my arrest, I became unsettled and became a heavy drinker. It was a month later when I became extremely intoxicated and vocal about Morco. Sheriff Whitney found me at the Brennan Saloon in a bad state of mind, and told me to settle down or I might get myself in trouble. The sheriff left me to sober up and said he was going across the street to have dinner with a friend. I did just as the sheriff requested. I asked for another bottle of whiskey and went over and watched my brother Ben teach a man by the name of John Sterling how to play Monty. A large number of Texas cowboys crowded around Ben's gambling table to make a bet on the turn of a card. Ben shuffled the 40-card Spanish deck of cards, dealt two cards from the bottom of the deck, laying them face up on the table. Ben dealt the next two cards from the top of the deck and laid them face down on the table. Ben stepped back in full view of the four cards, two cards faced up and two faced down, and said, Place your bets, gentlemen, on either layout. The players around the table quickly placed their bets and anxiously awaited Ben to turn the deck over, so the bottom gate card was face up. This time, the gate card matched the same suit for John Sterling. The bets played out on Sterling's layout. Ben collected losing cards on the table when John Sterling walked away from the table and made for the front door. Ben yelled out at him, Hey Sterling, you need to pay up your percentage. Sterling stepped out in the street. Ben handed me the deck of cards, told me to watch over the game, and departed the saloon in pursuit to the vanishing Sterling. It wasn't but about ten minutes after my brother left the saloon when I heard a shot fired. The gunshots cracked into the air as thunder, but without the raw power of a storm. To where I stood back in the room, the bolted noise reverberated in the streets and rang out into the saloon. I stood like everyone else in the room in silence, frozen to the anticipated sound of a second burst when Ben ran through the front door of the saloon. It was at the time in careful attendance to a deck of money cards on the table with a whiskey bottle to keep me company, as Ben's chaotic motions descended on the room. It seemed like a chaos of Ben's entry accelerated, a fear and wonderment of an unknown occurrence with a speculation of violence. "Does anyone have a gun?" shouted Ben. I dropped the deck on the table and started over the front door of the saloon when voice called out from the street. Get your guns, you Texas sons of bitches, and fight! I looked out the window of Brennan's saloon and observed Happy Jack Morco with two drawn pistols pointed in the air, one barrel smoked, and Deputy Sterling armed with a shotgun. I looked back to see if I could find Ben and took a glance at the tail of his black overcoat disappear through the back door of Brennan's saloon. I ran to the back door and followed Ben into Jake New's place where we checked our guns, Ben had time before I arrived to stuff his revolver in his belt, loaded his Winchester, and stepped out on South Main Street. I asked Jake for Ben's shotgun, and he refused to hand it over. You're not sober enough to go out in the street with a loaded gun, responded Jake. I grabbed Jake by his shirt collar. That's my brother out there, I said. I will be damned if you or anyone else is big enough to stop me. Now give me that shotgun, or I'm going through you to get it. under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War, who was his enemy of the United States. He was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast. My anger, mixed with the overconsumption of whiskey, all rushed to my head at once. I felt my heart pounding with excitement. I loaded the shotgun, cocked both barrels, and staggered out in the street. My hands gripped the front barrels of the shotgun. My eyes swiveled towards the back of my head in a distressed sense of a headache. I tilted my head downwards toward my boots and sighed as the street closed in around me. I looked forward as Ben's figure changed in the blink of an eye. Ben glanced over at me, seeing how out of balance I was. Be careful, Billy, Ben shouts. Ben's caution started me and I pulled back on one of the triggers. The shotgun discharges and a flare of fire poured out from one barrel of the gun. A blast of lead scattered across the boardwalk in front of New's Saloon. The blast pierced through the boardwalk and opened up wood splinters at the feet of two Texas drovers, Seth Maybury and Eugene Millen. "'What the hell?' yelled Seth as he ducked behind a wood frame entryway. "'Ben, get that damn shotgun from your brother before he kills us all!' screamed Eugene as he took two hops back fell off the boardwalk and into the street. Ben reached over and grabbed the shotgun away from me, breached the smoking barrel, and tried to extract the cartridges. Damn! Ben responded to the heat of the barrel. I can't eject the shell. The brass was swollen tight inside the barrel. He handed the shotgun over to Eugene and stepped into the street. I stepped off the boardwalk and shouldered Eugene with a hard push. Give me that gun, I said. I grabbed the shotgun back with one quick snatch out of Eugene's hands, picked up my staggered pace, braced my fall forward, and shadowed Ben down to Snake Row. I looked up, and there they stood, Sterling and Morco faced off with Ben in the middle of the street. Ben cocked the lever of his Winchester, loaded one round into the chamber, and positioned the rifle across his chest with his right index finger on the trigger. If you sons of bitches want to fight us, here we are. Across the plaza, on the opposite side of the tracks, I noticed Sheriff Chauncey B. Whitney coming out of Veach's Hotel and Restaurant. Another man followed him, a man I knew to be John Long Jack DeLong. Sheriff Whitney stepped across the tracks and called out, Boys, don't have any row. I will do all I can to protect you. Whitney pointed back to Long Jack You know John and I are your friends. Come, let us go to Brennan's and take a drink. My mind was in a state of frenzy. The street spun out of control around me faster than normal, and with my legs about to give way, I responded. Nope, I'm not going to do it this time, Sheriff, I said. I'm not going to let those damn sons of bitches get the best of Ben. It was at that moment when a small voice quietly nagged at the back of my mind. The voice reminded me that I would not feel this way tomorrow, and that my actions may have repercussions, and perhaps today one of great severity. I will walk back with you, but my shotgun will be ready and pointed in their direction. They better not follow us, or I'm going to let them have it. We walked across the plaza and back to Brennan's. The front doors of the saloon were crowded with spectators, and hindered me a clear path into the saloon. I started to push my way through the crowd when a Texas stockman by the name of W.A. Langford yelled out a warning, Watch out, Morco has a pistol. I stepped out of the saloon onto the boardwalk and looked over at Ben. Ben was in a full spin. He brought his Winchester up to his shoulder, took aim, and fired down the boardwalk. Ben's shot sent fire from the barrel of the rifle in the direction of Morco. Morco, at a full run with pistol pulled, had no time to return fire before he dove to the entrance of BB's general store. The bullet from Ben's rifle hit and splintered the door sheath, just missing Morco's head. I pulled back the hammer of my shotgun and leveled it at the concealed Morco. I was enraged by Morco's approach to shooting my brother in the back. I managed the shotgun through the crowded door, aimed, and heard Sheriff Whitney say, "'What does this all mean?' I fired. When I pulled the trigger, I did not hear the report or feel the kick, but I heard the devilish grumble of Sheriff Whitney outcry, "'Oh, I'm shot!' In that instant, a mysterious, terrible change had come over the crowd of witnesses. I looked out to see where my shot had landed and watched as Sheriff Whitney fell into the street. He looked suddenly stricken pinched as though the frightful impact of the scattered pellets had paralyzed him. His arms stretched out. His eyes marked me. An enormous senility seemed to have settled upon his face as he looked back into the street with his chest blustered open. Ben pushed me aside and screamed back at me, My God, Billy, you've shot our best friend! I was in shock. Disbelief, as I observed, Sheriff Whitney gasped for air in the middle of the street. I looked down at the mortally wounded sheriff as bystanders crowded around him. Sheriff Whitney motioned over for Long Jack to come closer. Long Jack kneeled next to him. He did not mean it, whispers Whitney, it was accidental. Send for my wife and baby. Despite the shooting being accidental, Ben forced me on a horse and ordered me to flee town. He told me to go to the house, pack my belongings, and say goodbye to Libby and Rance. Still in a drunken state, I decided not to do as I was told. I was angry, bitter, and needed a better choice. I rode over to Joe Brennan's place and decided I would take his wife with me. Joe was out front and attended to the down sheriff while I entered the back door of Brennan's place. I caught Molly by surprise, and she agreed to go with me. I was now an outlaw on the run with Molly Brennan, another man's wife. I found out later that Sheriff Whitney died on August 18, 1873. His death resulted in a $300 reward being placed on my head. Ben moved out of Ellsworth a few months later. Molly and I went back to Texas. For the next several years, Molly and I lived on the run from lawmen and bounty hunters. We traveled from one town to another. We stayed wherever she could find work and I could find a gambling table. In June 1874, I narrowly escaped capture in Austin, Texas. Later that same year, I was captured in Mountain City, Texas, but escaped with Molly and fled to San Antonio. In San Antonio, Molly worked at the Long Horse Brothel, and I became involved with a feud between Molly and another prostitute. To resolve the confrontation, I hit the prostitute across the face. I was now back on the run when two city police officers responded, in which again I escaped. Molly became tired and after two years on the run. We were broke and I needed a job. Molly returned to Ellsworth in 1874 and I returned to the cattle drives moving north into Texas. Libby moved on to Dodge City and established her trade. She knew I would eventually end up on the cattle trails and this led her to set up in Dodge City. Libby was popular with her patrons and made a decent living in her profession. She gained her famous moniker in Dodge City because of her fondness for prairie dogs. She thought they were cute and made good pets. She raised them and kept them in a cage. They often became very fat under her care and curled up in her lap like a dog. She even walked them on a leash. she begun going by the name Alice for her job, and one night a half-drunken man came upon her fondling one of her beloved pets, thinking her pets looked like squirrels and noticing the gap in her front teeth gave her a name that stuck, Squirrel Tooth Alice. While in Dodge City, Libby made a fortune and saved every penny in hopes of setting up a future business. My brother met up with Libby in MoBeaty, Texas. She knew from some of her clients a trading post being constructed near Sweetwater Creek in the Texas Panhandle. The trading post would be connected to Dodge City by the Jones Plumber Trail. Libby told Ben a man by the name of Charles Rath had formed a partnership with the post traders. The post traders, Lee and Reynolds, had ordered construction material from Dodge City to put up a supply and hide buying store on the creek five miles from the post. Libby packed up her bags and left Dodge City with the intentions of purchasing some land in the area and setting up a business next to the trading post. My brother Ben sent word to me. I purchased a wagon in Newton, Kansas, and in the cover of night, I traveled to Ellsworth to pick up Molly Brennan. By the time Molly and I arrived in February of 1875, a little settlement had been established on Sweetwater Creek along the North Fork of the Red River. The Rath Store was open for business, and the Tom O'Laughlin Restaurant and Boarding House brought in the guests. The O'Laughlins built their restaurant and boarding house out of pickets and sod, W.H. Weed had constructed a saloon and was selling whiskey. The small settlement made first, a buffalo hunter and a trapper camp, was unofficially called Hydetown. Town. Most of the residents in the settlement used buffalo hides in the construction of their dwellings and a Chinese laundromat had been established. Fort Catonement, about two miles northeast of Hyde Town, had been constructed in June. The purpose of Fort Catonement was to establish law and order in the region. The first buildings at the fort were made of sharpened cottonwood posts placed in the ground at close intervals, joined by poles fastened across the top. After Molly and I took a quick tour of the settlement, I accompanied her to Charlie Norton's place. There I met Libby. Libby and I discussed the idea of purchasing some land and setting up a saloon. She told me she'd acquired a large amount of money, and with partnership we could build the Lady Gay Saloon. We soon met up with a good friend, Henry Fleming, and started construction of the saloon made from adobe sod blocks. Libby suggested a dance floor, and we freighted in enough wood planks from Dodge City to build a 20 by 30 foot floor. The dance floor was located in the rear of the building. We also bought furniture, gambling equipment, a billiards table, and made arrangements for a gaggle of girls. The Lady Gay opened in October of 1876. Levy established herself as an entertainer. Fleming managed the lady gay, and I ran the gaming table.